Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. This morning we're going to continue our series titled Saints in Society from the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you would, grab a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians. I just want to say thank you real quick to Joe who, uh, Fritz, who's back there helping out with the soundboard. He came in this morning early. He has his own church family to help our church family out with uh, some sound stuff and everything like that. So you guys can just say thank you to Joe. So thank back you. there, yeah. Hey, I wanted to do this, and I think I can do it in about two minutes. As Mark McKay and I were talking this week and, and talking about why passports and, and giving a little bit more clarity and a little bit more vision for it, that I think might help us out as a church family to why we're downtown, what the purpose of this is, and what's going on. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to be brief, but just to explain it. And so the reason why we are doing these downtown passports is not to have a cool, flashy, trendy card or to even get a hat. The reason why we're doing this is pretty simple. Our church is recognized. Where, where, where is a, a central hub for brokenness in our city? And we would say that's downtown Eugene. Where, where's an area that doesn't have a lot of churches at? And we would say that's downtown Eugene. Where does a church seem to be fairly removed from? That would, we would say that's downtown Eugene. So the reason why, here, why we're here is because we feel called to be here and because we feel called to be near the brokenness, not removed from it. The purpose of these is twofold. So on Sunday mornings, there's a group of people that go out and they hand out sandwiches and they, uh, and they hand out socks and gloves and stuff like that. So they have these bags to go and serve the homeless people. But what we also want to do is be strategic, and that's what this is. And so it, 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 it is us going and building relationships with our neighbors and getting to know our neighbors. Here's the strategy, to love people and love people well, to share the gospel with them, and, 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 and to see them um, come to know Jesus as well. But let me say it this way. In a lot of ways, if, if, if we want to have an impact on a broken city, what will be helpful is one day when we have a community service project and we're putting together a community service team now, but when that team goes out into our neighbors and into our neighborhood and into downtown Eugene and we go in and say, hey, uh, so-and-so from the barn light, hey, so-and-so from uh, May Rocky, would you guys want to partner with us and with our church uh, to help us with this community service project? And they go, who are you guys? We've never even heard of you. We've never even seen you before. We've never even met you before then what we are able to do is actually go in there, let them know that we care about them, we care about their businesses, we care about the health and the well-being of our city. We see this in Jeremiah. And so we're, we're actually here to plant roots. We're here to care for them. We're here to love them. We're here to build relationships with them. And then we can say, hey, can you guys partner with us to help us with this community service project that we're doing? And so we want to love our neighbors. We want to love them well. But we also want to partner with our neighbors to say, man, let's have an impact on this community that God has placed us in. So that's just a quick tidbit about GCC downtown passports and I would encourage you guys to grab one get to know people get to know their stories ask them questions God loves people downtown Eugene is where a lot of people are at so we can go in these businesses and get to know them and let them know that our church is actually here because we want to be here for the long haul and plant roots so that's that with that let's dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 3 we switched the room up on you guys too in case you didn't notice you're welcome we figured we've been here for seven months. We've moved like three, four times this year, and we don't want you guys getting stagnant on us, so we'll just throw your souls back into a state of turmoil. Uh, may, hey, here's what I'll say. Since our church loves to run late, you don't know how the chairs are going to be faced next week, so maybe they'll be faced that way. <laughs> maybe they'll be faced that way, so maybe consider getting here at 10. So, all right. 
First Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 9 is what we're going to be in. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the place that our church exists. I pray that our strategy isn't one of conditional love. Our strategy is one of unconditional love, to love and serve those around us. As, Father, you have loved and served us in sending your Son to rescue us, to take the place at the cross that we deserve to be and to give us the righteousness that we don't deserve. Father, thank you for the Spirit. I pray the Spirit would move and lead us this morning, that we would grow in a deeper understanding of what it is to grow up in Christ, what it is to grow in spiritual maturity. We pray for uh, the presence and power of your Spirit this morning to teach us through your living, authoritative, inspired word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak. Thank you that you teach. Thank you that you communicate with us through your word. I pray that, that, that we would behold you in your glory through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The main point of this morning's sermon is the saints grow up. I was trying to think of something cool and flashy, something memorable, but that's just it. The saints grow up. So we're in this series titled Saints in Society because what we're actually looking at is this, is that uh, in, in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is addressing uh, situations. He's addressing uh, things that are going on inside of the community. And so we would call it an occasional letter because Paul is writing to specific occasions. And we understand in the first four chapters, Paul is addressing division that's going on inside of the church in Corinth. And so Paul is trying to, um, to counteract that. Paul is trying to show them who they are and then what it looks like for saints to live out of that identity. And so let me say this, because this is important. Saints means set apart. In Catholicism, saint is, is, is something that you arrive at. You work toward and you arrive at. In Protestantism, saint is the starting place that you live out of. So we don't become saints through our works and efforts. We are saints by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we start, and then we live out of that. We don't work towards sainthood. We are made saints by Christ. And so then, out of that, what does it look like for us to actually live as saints with this new identity that Christ gives us in the society he's placed us in? That's what we're going to look at today. And I'd say this, that the saints living out of their sainthood, the saints grow up. That's a normal part of being a saint is we just grow up. But here's the reality is our culture has an obsession with not growing up. Here's a song by Jake Owen. For those of you that think Christianity or country music satanic, we'll move past this one quickly. Jake Owen wrote this song uh, and, uh, called Barefoot Blue Jean Night, where the main chorus goes like this. Never going to grow up. Whoa, that's as close I'll ever get to singing up here. <laughs> Never going to slow down. So that's the main course of the song. Never going to grow up, never going to slow down. <clears throat> Avril Lavigne also wrote a song. 
Her lyrics go like this. I got a bottle of whatever, but it's gotten us drunk. I've never heard this song. But it's gotten us drunk. Singing, here's to never growing up. Call up our friends. Go hard this weekend for no darn reason. I don't think we're ever going to change. Maybe you prefer more of the Bob Dylan forever young. But also think about this. A popular movie is Peter Pan. What is the premise of Peter Pan? Never growing up. So, so much is coming at us through songs and through our culture and even through movies about staying forever young, about never growing up. We buy medicine and supplements to help us stay young and we act and treat growing up as though it's something bad. And I'm not picking on anyone here. I, I, I want to be clear on that. But I think sometimes the reason why people are still in their 30s living at home playing video games, so maybe I am picking on people a little bit, is because you hear people say, I'm just waiting to get my dream job. I'm waiting to get my dream job. But any parent who's known this, who's had a, a, a child who has left home and then come back, what they're actually saying is, I want to be independent. I just want you to basically pay for all my bills. I just don't want rules and I don't want authority. But I'm over 18, so you can't tell me what to do. And I think in a lot of ways, when we approach the Bible, we do the same thing is we say, I want to be independent. I want Jesus to forgive me, to give me all of his grace, all of his love, and all of his acceptance. I just don't want his lordship over my life. I don't want him to be king and ruler of every area of my life. And so what Jesus becomes is this bro mentality where Jesus helps you get through maybe a hard breakup or something like that, but Jesus never is the Lord of your life who you are submitting to his authority, you are submitting to his rule and reign, and you are growing up in what it looks like to be a child of God. I had a young guy recently, I was like, why are you at uh, GCC? I don't think I said it with that much snarkiness, but I was like, why are you at GCC? And he said, I heard there are hot girls at GCC. This is his response. Um, okay. <laughs> Here's the reality. This young guy wanted something. He wanted someone to disciple him. He wanted this. And so I asked him, like, where, where, where are you serving the church? Where, where are you loving the church? It's like, if the only reason you're coming to the church is just for hot girls or to find hot girls, then your very understanding of the church is completely flawed. I'm not saying trying to find a husband or wife in the church is a bad thing. I'd say that's a good place to start, Okay. I'm just saying that if your sole purpose for going to church on Sunday mornings or if the reason why you come once a month or if the reason why you show up to a gospel community once a month, I bet it's because you still think church is all about you and what you can get out of it. So you're, you're, you're not growing up. What you're doing is growing inward about how church serves me and, and my focus and my priorities. It's not about going and loving and serving and building up others. It's about me finding a wife. It's about me getting this. Well, I didn't like the sermon this morning. Wasn't enough jokes. Wasn't this. Wasn't that. Whatever it is, it's not about me and what I'm getting. And so there's this lack of growing up that exists. And here's what Paul is dressing. In, 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 in chapter 3, verse 1, he's addressing carnal Christianity. And what carnal Christianity is this and what the doctrine is, is that basically Jesus just gives me his forgiveness and his grace that I can live however I want. It's cool. And what Paul says is this, look, but I, brothers, family, could not address you as spiritual people. He's saying when he first came and when he planted this church, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. 
So Paul says, verse 1, he's like, when, when, when we first started together, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but I had to address you as people of the flesh and as infants in Christ. And here's the thing. We shouldn't expect a 4-year-old to act the same way a 10-year-old. We shouldn't expect our 10-year-old kids to act the same as a 20-year-old. And we shouldn't expect 20-year-olds to act the same as 40-year-olds or 40-year-olds as an 80-year-old. But we should expect people to grow up. If you guys remember the Tom Hanks movie Big, it's where he wished to grow up. And then it was really weird because he took his first paycheck as a grown man and just filled his apartment with like toys for he and his buddy. Just toys and like a Pepsi machine. We would say, that's cool if you're 12, but not for grown men. And I would say for our church, if our church is going to have a foundation and roots, we need men and women to grow up. We need to grow up in Christ. We don't want to look like Tom Hanks, full-grown men, just buying uh, uh, toys to fill our apartment with. But sometimes our view of Christianity is, what can I get out of it? Not, what do I give to it? The other thing Paul says here is, look, I couldn't, at first, I, I couldn't expect you to look a certain way because you're infants. But he uses this word flesh, and I want to, I want us to grab an understanding of what flesh means and how Paul is using it here. I would simply define it this way. Flesh is what is in us that opposes God. It's what's in us that opposes God. Now, there are plenty of verses in the Bible that talk about flesh and blood, uh, talking about our physical nature and talking about humanity, not as a bad thing. That's just who we are. We're flesh and blood. In, In Ephesians 6, we see Paul saying that your battle is not against flesh and blood. But here, and many other places, Paul is using it to say that that which is still in you because you're on this earth still. You've been set apart, holy, washed, clean, pure, righteous, but there's still, and we would get this as Christians, there's still a part of us that, that, that there's this war that's going on. There's this flesh inside of us. There's a sinful presence that is still trying to pull us into that. I'll define it a few other ways. I won't. I'll let John Knox and and, uh, Susanna Wesley do it. John Knox said this. John Knox, uh, the starter of the the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, someone who was known for his devout prayer life. Like they said he would pray for three to four hours in the morning. He had calluses on his knees. He was known for his devoted life. A big player in the Protestant Reformation says this uh, toward the end of his life. He says, I know how hard the battle is between the flesh and the spirit under the heavy cross of affliction. When no worldly defense but present death doth appear, I know the grudging and murmuring complaints of the flesh. He's saying at the end of his life, I know how real the flesh is. I've been battling with it my whole life. We see Paul say this in Romans 7. He's like, I know the thing I'm supposed to do. I do the very thing I don't want to do. There's this battle that's going on inside. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who also... Uh, the Methodist church movement comes out of them from living methodically. So that's where the Methodist church comes from, is these two guys that, 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 that were devoted to holy living. Their mom says this. It's, it's great. Whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. 
So what is flesh? There's this war, that, there's this battle that takes place inside of us. We know who we are in Christ, pure and washed and holy and clean and new. But there's this presence of sin that is constantly at war with us, trying to pull us into that. And so Paul says, look, I, I couldn't address you as mature people because you just weren't. You were brand new Christians. But now look what he says in verse 2. So I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, here's the problem, even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What is he saying? He's saying, you're not growing up. You, 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 you still need milk. You're not ready for solid food. I still have to feed you this because you are just simply not growing up. The examples that he gives are jealousy and strife. There's jealousy going on among you. What is jealousy? Where do, what is its root? I think that's a good question. There's good jealousy and bad jealousy in Scripture. Good jealousy simply is this. It is outward. So I can be jealous for my bride if there's something that, uh, that, that, that is happening that looks like it's going to hurt her, then in my jealous love and zeal for her, I would move toward her. God's love is jealous for his, um, for his people. His love moves him toward us. A jealousy that is bad moves us inward to everything we're getting or not getting. Jealousy is oftentimes driven by this. Codependency is one. Since you need someone else to give you a sense of worth, then as soon as you feel like they are slipping out of your hands or you're losing that, then you are trying at all costs to get them back. This can make you jealous and seem very controlling. It can also be driven from shame. I don't ever feel like enough, and so I wish I had her body, I wish I had his job, his career, and there's this deep shame that produces jealousy within us because it's what we're not getting. There's fear. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been hurt by someone. And so as a means to protect yourself, you get jealous. Or as a means from letting someone hurt you, you get jealous. Also, jealousy just comes from, if you're like, ah, none of those really strike a chord for me, then let me help you out. Your jealousy is probably uh, uh, pride. And your jealousy is probably entitlement. And so sometimes we go, I don't understand. I'm doing this. I'm working this hard. I'm putting this sort of effort into it. Why are they getting success and I'm not? Why does their life look like this and my life looks like this? And so we have this entitlement thing of like, I'm working hard. I can do the same things they're doing. How come they're getting the recognition for it and I'm not getting it? But here's the thing. All this is simply about what you're getting and not getting. And the Bible has strong words for jealousy. I'll, I'll give you three verses. We have a slide for them. James 3.16, Proverbs 14.30, and Proverbs 27.4. Look what the Bible says about jealousy. It's not like, oh, it's jealousy. It's cool. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It's a nice picture. Proverbs 27.4. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy. Jealousy is the mark of someone who's not growing up because they are focused inward on what they're getting and not getting, and they're looking around at what everyone else has. When the saints grow up, when the saints grow up, what happens is they stop looking at everything they're not getting, 
and what they think they should have. But the other thing he uses here is strife. Strife. What exactly is strife? Here is what I will say. I have very never, I have never, I have never had someone sit in my office, talk to me and say, my marriage is struggling and there's strife. And there's strife because all I want to do is just love God for his glory and just serve my wife like crazy. Most strife exists inside of marriage because you're not getting what you want or someone's not understanding your way. And so there's strife. There's strife in marriages. There's strife in relationships. It's normally not there's strife because you're like, man, I'm just trying so hard to be self-sacrificial in my loving and they're just not seeing it. And maybe there's strife even in that because you're self-righteous in how you're doing it. But Paul's saying, I can't address you guys as spiritual. I, I can't feed you anything solid. We, we just got to stick with milk here because you're not growing up. You're not living into who you are in Christ. You're not living out of that identity. In fact, it's really hard to tell the difference between Corinth and the saints because you guys look very similar. This is, this is how Paul is, is addressing it. What else is there strife about inside of the church? Well, we've already seen prior to this that Paul is addressing that they're attaching themselves to certain leaders inside of the church. And we can see it here again in verse 5. What then is Apollo? What is Paul? Ser servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What is the strife? The text does not say, the word of God does not say, this is exactly what they are fighting about. So we cannot say we know for sure. But we can draw some logical conclusions by what it doesn't say. And that's this. If they were arguing about core doctrines inside of the church about the Trinity, if they were arguing about um, uh, uh, God in his very nature, if they were arguing about salvation, if they were arguing about these things that we would say are close-fisted things, things that we can't uh, disagree on, the inerrancy of Scripture, if they were arguing about these things, we know that Paul would pull no punches in addressing those things. We've seen him, we see him do that to Peter in Galatians. We see that Paul's not afraid to go against something that is contrary to the gospel or to sound doctrine. So we, it, it's clear that Paul, uh, Apollos and Peter and these people aren't teaching anything contrary to the gospel or to core and sound doctrine. We can draw that conclusion. So what are they fighting about? It's not even important enough for Paul to say. What does that mean? Probably the, the, the church getting turned around sideways on a Sunday morning. Stuff like that. Pews over, over chairs. Whether the preacher stands or sits. A lot of preferences, a lot of preferences. And here's the thing, preferences about how everything should look can create a ton of strife in community because preferences are all about what? What you're getting and everyone's seeing it or not seeing it or, or, or taking all of your ideas seriously. And so all of our preferences, instead of laying them down before God, not saying they're an evil thing, but laying them down and then saying, how can I love and serve God and others? We're saying, I know the way church should be done and they ain't seeing it. So I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated. Not even sure that I can 
dive in there. Oftentimes, people with the most preferences, here's the reality, are the least connected to the body of Christ. Least connected to community. Least connected to relationships. Why? Preferences are so inward focused. It's not sound doctrine. I would love for people, there, there's some stuff going on and people are like, we're getting together. We're like, what are you going to get together about? What are you guys talking about? Someone's not sure what the Trinity is. So we're going to teach them. Said it's like, still debating on the five points of Calvinism or de- debating on some doctrinal distinctives or we're debating on how music should look and everything like that instead of loving God and loving others. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. It's, it's beautiful. Words it so well. Th- this is a quote worth like putting somewhere, plastering, re- uh, um, remembering. He says this, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of the idolized community demand that, they, uh, that, that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build, Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it. For he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. We must confess he builds. We must proclaim he builds. We must pray to him and he will build. We do not know his plan. We cannot see whether he is building or pulling down. It may be that the time, that the times, which by human standards are the times of collapse, are to him the great times of reconstruction. It may be that the times, which from a human point are great times for the church, are actually times when it's pulled down. It is a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, preach, bear witness to me, and I alone will build where it pleases me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, talking about Christian community. And so I think there's two ways that we have to grow up. We can see that there's this carnal Christianity where I can just live and do whatever I want. I don't have to obey the rules or authority or the lordship of Christ. And there's this other way where we spend all of our time talking about preferences and what we want and, 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 and we're, there's strife among, uh, about petty things. Do you know what Paul is trying to do, though? You can see here. Paul is trying to get you out of a man focus, out of, outside of your inward focus, and even outside of looking to now another man like Apollos or himself. He does that by simply saying this. Look, Paul and I, or Apollos and I, we're just servants. We're actually, we're not anything. He says that. We're not anything. Don't worship us. We're not anything. It's only God who gives the growth. Your preferences and all that you want are actually blinding you from seeing it's that God, it's God who gives the growth. Sometimes all the things that we want or we're not getting, we can be so zeroed into everything that we want that we can miss seeing the glory and the beauty and the work that God is doing inside of the church. Because we can only be focused in on what we want, what we're not getting and all that sort of stuff. We can miss what Paul's trying to do, that it's God who, get, who, who, who gives the growth. So I would say this, the saints grow up, how? By looking up and looking out. The saints grow up, that's to be expected. We, we don't have a gospel, we, or I'll say it this way, we have a gospel that takes us right where we are, in the midst of our brokenness, just how messed up we are, 
God never says, go fix yourself, then come back to me and I will take you. He takes you right where you are. So if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, let me make this clear. The gospel isn't make yourself right and come to Jesus. The gospel is he will take you right where you are. But then the gospel is powerful enough through the working of the spirit to not leave you right where you are. You can expect growth. You can grow up. You grow up by growing out. You grow up by looking out, looking to God, looking to his glory, serving, worshiping, praising him, and then you grow up by actually looking out to the needs of others. It's the law is simple. Love God, love others. We focus inward on ourselves. Now, I want to be clear in this, that we're not called to be growth worshipers, and we don't rank ourselves with, I have more growth than they do. We're all saints equally. We're all saved by the grace of God equally. The rate at which we grow will be different, but we can expect that we will grow as Christians. And here's the thing. I think there's a huge deficit. I'm just going to say this. I think there's a huge deficit in the church today, especially in the Pacific Northwest, because men are not growing up. They're not growing up. I I think we see the impacts of this inside of our homes. I think we see the impacts of this inside of our families. But we have men who have been following Jesus for 30 years, and it's hard to see how they are growing up. And if that's a hard word for you, then let it be, and let it sit in a little bit. But I believe that we are called by God's grace to grow up. And we need men to grow up. We need our men to, to, to move outward. And oftentimes, we can put up a verse from Galatians, we can see what's going on there. That everything that's listed here, I'm going to get down to it. If you jump down about five rows there to, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Look, look, look at the works of the, of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Not just men, I'm picking on. Everyone, I just want to say that the time that we spend in, in, in our relationships where, where, where we are not married, having sex with the person we are with, is time that we are wasting building them up to who they are in Christ. The times that we spend gossiping about other people is the time that we waste praying on their behalf. The times that we are so focused on getting all that we want and all of our needs met are just times that we are wasting actually loving and serving others. And to, and, and, and to be frank, sometimes we, we, we sin, we fall in sin, and then we wallow in sin. Instead of understanding the grace of God is sufficient, and instead of just making our lives all about our sin now and, and, and thinking about how we can love and serve God and others, we just wallow in it. I would encourage you when you fall into sin, repent, confess, but then start praying even for other people. I believe that the church needs the saints to grow up because it'll be really confusing for the rest of Eugene and for the rest of people if we have a bunch of grown men and women who look like they're 12 years old. We need that. So what does it look like? I'm going to close by briefly going over this. If you're here and you're like, it's heavy, it's purposeful. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, here's what Paul has said so far. 
I'm going to quickly go through these. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he said, those sanctified. So Paul is calling those that are saints. He's saying you're washed clean and pure, called to be saints, called to be set apart. That's who you are. In 1 Corinthians 1, 4, he says, because of the grace of God that was given to you. So what do saints have? They have the grace of God. That is an unmerited, unearned favor and love that God has. Some would call it a one-way love. In 1 Corinthians 1.5, you were enriched in him, enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. What else do you have in Christ? In 1.9, you were called into the fellowship of his son. You have fellowship with Jesus, our Lord. What, what else does Paul say that the saints have? In, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, you are in Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, meaning that you bear the robe and, 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 and the clothes of Christ's righteousness. He's also cleansed you from the inside out. He's redeemed you. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. Someone once said, if you, if, if you gave a job summary of, of what the Holy Spirit does, is the Holy Spirit takes us deeper into who we are in Christ, reminding us daily who we are and what we possess as children of God. Spirit convicts. The Spirit illuminates Scripture. The Spirit does a, lot, does a lot, but the Spirit teaches us about Christ, who He is and what He's done. He also says we have the mind of Christ. What do saints have? What do we have? We have the gospel. We have the gospel that has purchased us. We have the gospel that has redeemed us. We have the gospel that has made us new. If my daughter was sitting right here today and she felt the weight of conviction, she felt the weight of God's law, she felt the weight of how much she's missed the mark, then I would, I, I would kneel down to her and, and say this. If you feel the weight of your sin and your gravity, I, I would say that's a good thing because here's the reality. That the weight and the gravity that you feel is a real understanding of how big our sin is. Sin is not this ethereal thing that exists out there. It's something inside of us. I probably wouldn't use some of that language. But I would look at her and I would say, Joey or Brooks, please know and understand this. That whatever wrath or condemnation you might feel, whatever guilt or shame that you might feel that you are worthy of, I need you to know right now that Jesus Christ bore that on your behalf. That though you might deserve that punishment for your sin, we know that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We know that he was crushed for our iniquities. We know that Christ took the place that we deserve to be. And Joe, I want you to know that as a child of God, you are loved, forgiven, and redeemed. But God did not stop there. He placed his Holy Spirit inside of you so now you can grow up into who you are in Christ and you can live out of that identity. And I think that's where we can't stop. We can't stop going, yay, identity in Jesus, I got it. That is all yours. You never, ever, ever have to work to gain that. You never have to do works to earn that, ever. Everyone else in life might need something from you. Listen, God needs nothing from you. He wants to love you and wants you to enjoy him. Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your works, your neighbors do. But this gospel that has saved us and made us new has now called us to actually live into who we are in Christ. If we're holy, we reflect that. If we're pure, we reflect that. And what does it call us to do? To move outward, to live for God's glory, to love him and to love others instead of ourselves. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we love you and we confess that we need you. And that, Father, if, if there's something in us that just needs to stir in us for a moment so that we can reflect maybe on how we're not growing in Christ to maybe how we're actually believing a lie that's not who we are in Christ, then I pray that now you would speak to us and minister to us and even convict us through your Holy Spirit, but I pray your Holy Spirit would take us to what is true and who we are in Jesus and let us rejoice. Amen.